Lucas. And I'm Jesse. And this is Double Blind. Every week, Lucas and I each pick a breaking scientific study, we put it into context, and we explain to you guys exactly what happened and why it really matters. So if you're curious about science, if you're curious about the news, if you're curious about looking beyond the headlines, come with us. We think it's going to be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, the Rocky Dwarf. Is Pluto geologically active? And beyond the poppy, synthesizing opioids from yeast. Okay, Lucas, why don't you start us off today? Thanks, Jesse. There's been something big happening in the world of science, which we have not talked about at all. We've completely ignored it for the last month. Right. And I figure it's time to do it. Okay. Pluto has been back in the news again. Yes. Pluto, that planet we kicked out of the solar system (laughs) for what are, in my opinion, very good reasons. Right. That's not what we're talking about today. (laughs) So for those of you who haven't seen, and you probably have seen the picture, because it really has been making rounds on the internet. Mm -hmm. NASA's spacecraft, New Horizons, has flown past Pluto. Right, which is amazing. <laughs> I mean, the picture is beautiful. It's taken many pictures, but there's this one that's been making rounds on the internet. And compared to the old picture of Pluto, because the old best one we had was a blur. It was a smudge. And now we have beautiful resolution. We can see there's these intricate details on the surface. It truly is amazing. It's the closest we've ever gotten to Pluto, for sure. Absolutely. It's really incredible. This amazing image has been making the rounds but there hasn't been a lot of discussion about what this can actually tell us about Pluto Mm -hmm. and what sort of questions we're actually interested in. Okay. Uh, So I've got a paper today which asks one of these questions. To be clear, there are no answers yet. Okay. So this is a question which they're hoping to use imagery from New Horizons to solve. Okay. And they've thought it out very thoroughly and they've eliminated possible answers, but they're really hoping that New Horizons will point them towards it. Okay, cool. So this is entirely based on data collected by New Horizons. This is entirely based on data collected before New Horizons. Okay. The data from before New Horizons poses the question. New Horizons itself, they're hoping will show the answer. Okay, cool. Pluto's atmosphere is incredibly nitrogen-rich. Right. It is over 90% nitrogen. Okay, so what is that in compared to our atmosphere? The big difference between the atmospheres is the fact that on Earth there's a lot of it and Pluto there's not. Mm -hmm. On Earth we say our atmosphere there's about one bar of atmospheric pressure. Okay. On Pluto there's about 10 microbars. Okay. So that's 10 millionths Millions. Of a bar. Wow. Millions of a bar. Yeah. And so that's mostly just because of the size of the, I was not planet, but the size of the dwarf planet. Like it's just so small yeah. that it can't hold the atmosphere in. Exactly. Right. So you've, you've really hit on one of the key issues. I mean, partially there's also less stuff to produce an atmosphere out there. Mm-hmm. That's other problems. But yeah, you've hit on the key issue here. Pluto's very small. And the observation of a lot of nitrogen on Pluto has really been puzzling scientists because Pluto isn't big enough to hold on to nitrogen. Oh, weird. Okay. So so here's the thing. Planets hold on to atmospheres through gravity. Right. Which makes sense. Yeah. The bigger the planet, the more gravity they have, the better they can hold on to the gases around them. Right. Totally makes sense. And, you know, gases go from light to heavy. Mm-hmm. Right? There's light gases, there's heavy gases based on the size of the atoms which make up the molecules of the gas. Right. And that's just where they are on the periodic table, pretty much. Exactly. Lighter gases tend to fly away from smaller planets that don't have the gravitation to hold them in. Okay, I see what you're getting at. So there's a very simple rule here. The bigger the planet, 
the more light gas it can hold on to. Okay. So as an example, Jupiter, biggest planet in our solar system, mm-hmm. can hold on to hydrogen, which is the lightest gas. Okay. It's got an atomic mass of two because it's two hydrogen atoms. Each hydrogen has an atomic mass of one. They go together to H2, which is hydrogen gas. So it has a mass of two. Cool. Earth cannot hold hydrogen. Okay. We do not have hydrogen in our atmosphere because it escapes. I didn't actually realize that's that, that was the case. That's very cool. It's interesting. Earth, however, can hold on to nitrogen. Okay. Nitrogen has a molecular mass of 28. Okay. So that's two nitrogen atoms. Each weighs 14. They go together to 28. Okay. So what is the lightest gas that Earth can hold on to? So on Earth, hydrogen and helium will escape to space, mm-hmm. but heavier things tend to stay. So like water vapor we can hold on to. Right. Uh, methane, which is CH4, four hydrogens around a carbon. Okay. We can hold on to that too. Right. But here's the thing. Pluto is too small to hold on to nitrogen. So nitrogen on Pluto is constantly escaping to space. It's constantly floating away from the planet. I think I see where this is going. But we have an atmosphere with over 90% nitrogen. So where is the nitrogen coming from? Exactly. And that is the big question this paper is addressing. Is this one of those, like, the call is coming from inside the building kind of things? Wow, that, that's actually perfect. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that is a perfect metaphor. Where's the nitrogen coming from? Could it be coming from inside the planet? Ooh. The dwarf planet, technically? Yeah, the dwarf planet. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, Pluto. <laughs> there are good reasons you're not a real planet. <laughs> okay, so aside from the, the footprint in the sand being that there's nitrogen in the atmosphere, what are the other yep. indications that it's coming from geology? Well, honestly, at this point, not much. Because remember, up to this point, we've just had a couple pixels of a picture of Pluto. Right. And we've just seen the high-resolution images. But it's it's very clear that this is something we hope to get the answer for in the future. Okay. So they s- essentially start by eliminating all the other possibilities. Right. First one, comets. Comets float around the solar system. They hit things. And they bring a lot of different elements. And nitrogen is one of them. Okay. So they did a budget. Essentially, they estimated how many comets hit Pluto. Mm-hmm. And... They tried to figure out if it balanced the loss of nitrogen. Right. And they found no. Okay. No, there aren't, there aren't enough comets hitting Pluto. Interesting. So that was thing number one, eliminated. Thing number two is an interesting one. This is the excavation hypothesis. Oh, okay. So there is nitrogen held in rocks and stuff that make up planets. And the idea is if planets get hit by either comets or uh, meteors, Things get excavated. You make a crater. Pluto's covered in craters. We know that now. That could stir nitrogen up into the atmosphere. Right. And in fact, to support that, there is nitrogen ice on the surface of Pluto. Okay. There's frozen nitrogen on the surface. Interesting. Cratering on the planet could throw that into the atmosphere. Right. However, they ran some simulations of that and they found that, well, you'd need a really, really deep layer of nitrogen ice for that to balance this. Okay. So they're thinking... Probably not. It's very unlikely is is how they refer to that one. Sherlock Holmes process of elimination here. So they've only got one left. Okay. Unless, for some reason, the escape rates of nitrogen to space have been overestimated. Mm -hmm. The one last possibility is that there's some sort of geologic process that transfers nitrogen from inside the planet to the outside of the planet. Okay. So what, what would that be? Is that like volcanic activity? Yeah. It could be something called cryovolcanism. Okay. So tell us about what that is. No idea. Cryovolcanism. I mean, it's essentially what the word says it is. It's ice volcanoes. Ice volcanoes. Cryo, right? We talked Cryo about Cryovolcanism. Like, yeah. Or some sort of geyser of gas or ice or something like that. They really don't 
know what That's it could crazy. be. That's crazy. But it could be something crazy like that that has been previously not considered. On Interesting. Pluto. That's really cool. And I mean, it is really cool. And it would be awesome if Pluto was geologically active because people have kind of thought of Pluto as a dead rock. Right. Floating around in the solar system. Yeah. We, we kind of think of it as this cold, dead nothing. Yeah. But that's very, very neat. What a cool idea. It really is. So when, when will we know? Like, what, when will they be able to use the data from New Horizons? Any idea? The truth is we don't know. Because primarily what New Horizons is giving us that could aid in this is pictures. Right. And pictures are awesome. Pictures are really cool. But it takes a lot of interpretation. And then that interpretation is then going to lead to a lot of argument. <laughs> and then eventually consensus will hopefully be reached okay so this is this is something that's gonna happen in the future i don't know when um but people are already analyzing the new horizon images mm -hmm. and it's uh, it's an exciting little field to tell us a bit about the planet that we kicked out of the solar system ice volcanoes on pluto ice volcanoes on pluto it's a cool it's possible yeah it's a very cool thought i love the idea Okay, so we're, before we go on to the second study for today, we wanted to try and quickly introduce a new little segment. We often come across more than one interesting study per week because there's so many cool ones that come out. And we wanted to try and throw in the opportunity to, to just quickly mention some of the other neat things that we find. Basically give you a little headline. And then on our website, doubleblindscience.com, you'll be able to check out a link to read a little bit more about these if they pique your interest. The FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S., has approved the first 3D-printed pill. It's for a drug that helps control epileptic seizures, and the advantage to 3D-printing pills is they can be custom-made in a very precise dosage to individual patients. It's essentially a robotic compound pharmacist. <laughs> That's extremely cool. So another one that we found that was kind of interesting is that uh, a study found that women tend to respond more to romance when their stomachs are full than when they're empty. And the same study suggests that the stimuli are interpreted differently if they've had a history of dieting. So buy your dinner first. Yeah, I guess so. Or split dinner because it's 2015. Yeah, and seriously, let's... Uh, yeah, come on, split the bill. Let's overthrow these old archaic gender roles. Yeah, so if you're interested in learning more about these, pop on our website, check it out. We'll throw links up there. So um, I'm going to start this one off with a question for you, Lucas. Have you ever been hospitalized before? Um, yeah, I guess technically, yeah. When I was a kid, I had uh, whooping cough, pertussis. Okay. Uh, and I was in the hospital for a little bit for that. Do you know if you've ever been given painkillers in the hospital? Like strong painkillers? Uh, no, I, I, I don't believe so. No. Okay. Well, I have. Okay. Um, most notably the time when I had my appendix out uh, when I was eight years old. Ooh, that's young. Yeah, it was really, it was different from how it normally happened. And so I ended up actually being in the hospital for 10 days while, oh, while I wow, recovered from a pretty brutal surgery. Quite some time, yeah. Yeah, and I was on a lot of morphine at the time. <laughs> Fun times. And in, in fact, I remember learning afterwards that I was on the highest dose of morphine you could legally give an eight-year-old. Wow. Which is pretty brutal. Those of you listening, if you've ever been in the hospital and you've been given strong painkillers for any seriously painful injuries or procedures that you've gone through, there's a good chance that you've experienced the effects of an opioid. Mm -hmm, right. So 
Some examples of opioids are codeine, hydromorphone, methadone, morphine, oxycodone, and heroin, among many, many, many others. Lots of things come from poppies, don't they? Yeah, they do. So opioids, which, as you mentioned, come from poppies, are drugs that bind to the opioid receptors in the central and peripheral nervous system. So that's kind of what defines that that group, opioids. Okay. Uh, they have a lot of intended effects, usually, which are... They're incredible painkillers, incredibly effective painkillers. Yeah. Probably the most effective that we know. Uh, Extreme sedation in some cases, euphoria, depending on the drug. They also come with a ton of side effects and are extremely addictive. Yes, very much so. And can be deadly, can't they, at high dosages? They can absolutely be deadly. In fact, some opioids are used in the cocktails that are given uh, for capital punishment in the United States to, to kill death row inmates hmm. so they they the, the opioids giveth and the opioids taketh away so researchers out of stanford have just found a way to make common baker's yeast the stuff you bake bread with produce opioids produce these drugs what yeah what we're talking about making yeast produce these insanely powerful pharmaceuticals that sounds um risky <laughs> yeah so We'll, we'll talk. We'll have a little discussion afterwards about some of the social implications of this. For sure. Let's do a little, uh, a little backstory about what opium is, what opioids are. Sounds good. How yeah. it's developed. Okay. As we mentioned, opioids originally come from poppies, specifically the opium poppy. Okay. Is that is that a particular species of poppy? It is or? a particular species of poppy. It's also the most common species of poppy. Oh. It's the same species that we get poppy seeds from. Oh, so like. The poppies in my parents' backyard. Yeah, exactly. Are opium poppies. Okay. It's like just like garden variety poppies. In fact, uh, there was a Mythbusters episode where they found that people would test positive for drugs in their system after having eaten, I think it was four poppy seed bagels. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I've definitely had four poppy seed bagels before. <laughs> yeah. Haven't felt good about it afterwards. But <laughs> I don't think it's enough to feel any effects, but it's enough to put enough traces of the, the drug in your system that you'll test positive. But that is from a Mythbusters episode. So that's the only citation we have there. Take what you want from that. So the opium poppy mostly grows in Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Thailand, and Colombia, and a couple other countries. Right. There's some huge social issues. Oh, my gosh. Regarding that in those areas. Totally. It's a really interesting crop. Uh, the Latin name of the plant is Papaver somniferum. Okay. Which is Latin for the sleep-bringing poppy because of its effects. Ooh. So they knew what it did. They knew what it did. And in fact, they've known what it's done for a long time. Really? Poppies have been used for their drug-like effects since well before the start of written history. Really? Yeah. There are wow. images okay. of opium poppies found in ancient Sumerian artifacts. Whoa. Yeah. Which are estimated to be from around 4000 BC. Whoa. I had no idea. Humanity's been using these for a long, 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 long time. We've been using drugs for a lot longer than I thought. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right since the beginning. Huh. Let's quickly get a little bit into semantics here. So we've got the opium poppy, and that's the plant itself. So the seed pod of these poppies contain this latex that's inside, which when dried is what's referred to as raw opium. Latex? What do you mean by latex? It is a latex, which is a substance that's produced huh. by plants. Okay, I'm, I'm learning so much. Yeah, so it's this like liquid substance, okay. which is latex, and... When we dry that and we take the moisture out of it, it becomes raw opium. Okay. That that material, raw opium, in 2002, the street retail price in Afghanistan uh, worked out to about $16,000 American per kilogram. Yeah, that's yeah. It's not a terrible profit margin. No, it's in fact, that's almost double the cost of gold at that time. Whoa. Which is, yeah, pretty amazing. Opium contains within it 
opiates. Opiates are substances such as morphine. So that raw opium is actually around 8 to 14% morphine by dry weight. Okay. So it just contains morphine within it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it contains other opiates such as um, thebane and codeine. So it's just a big cocktail of all these exactly. drugs that we know. Yeah. Okay. The term opiate is used to refer to any drug contained in the opium, which is slightly different from the term opioid, which is a drug that has the same or similar behavior to an opiate. Okay. And the reason why that's important is that opiates basically come from the poppy, whereas opioids refer to everything that bonds to those opioid receptors in our nervous systems, which include some synthetic opioids. So only only certain drugs that we know in this class are actually from poppies. Yes. So morphine, for instance, and codeine are are considered natural opiates. So they're found in the raw opium. Uh, Other chemicals like oxycodone or hydrocodone are considered Mm -hmm. semi-synthetic opioids, which means they're chemically converted from morphine and thebine and other opiates. Uh, Whereas something like methadone, which we know from methadone clinics, which are used to help people recover from addiction, are synthetic opioids. So those are produced in a lab. But those synthetic ones make up a very small percentage of all of the opioids used worldwide. Okay, so it's mainly natural. We're mainly still using stuff that comes from the poppy. All right. Right? I mean, it's it's 2015 here, and there's still this huge demand for these drugs worldwide, both illegal and legal. And we still rely on a crop to produce pretty much 100% of the opiates and the semi-synthetic opioids. The key thing about a crop is obviously that it's dependent on environmental factors, requires a huge amount of land. Yeah. And I mean, think of the things that can cause problems with crops, right? Pests, disease, everything. climate, everything. So it, it's it's a pretty volatile source of a absolutely critical drug. I, I'm not very well versed in the intricacies of opium production. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe it's the most, you know, socially stable crop to have. Not at all. For many reasons in, in particularly unstable countries. Totally. It creates huge social issues. There's been worldwide actually a lot of shortages of these compounds. Okay. Um, the World Health Organization has identified morphine and a number of other opiates as essential compounds for pain treatment. So they're considered things that countries should have access to because they are essential. As it turns out, only seven countries use almost 80% of the world's morphine supplies. Really? Yeah. Are these first world countries? Are these highly developed? These are first world countries. Yeah. Including Canada, which means that many emerging countries tend to experience real shortages in access to these medications, which are so important. You know, I was looking into, like, why aren't we synthesizing this stuff at this point? Because it seems like having it be a crop is such a huge problem. Yeah. Well, there are about 30 published chemical syntheses of morphine and other compounds. That's a lot. Yeah, but none of them are even close to being feasible for scale production. Like, completely out of the ballpark, no way these are ever going to turn into feasible ways to create large amounts of these drugs. So you can start to see the possible benefit for synthesizing this stuff. Absolutely. Now back to this study where we're talking about using yeast to synthesize these compounds. Baking up some morphine. Yeah. How the heck did they do this? What they did is they genetically engineered the yeast. Of course. So they added genes to the yeast to help it perform this new task of of synthesizing these compounds. They wanted the yeast to be able to convert sugar into the opioids, so they needed to add genes that would help it do that. Sure. The idea being that they add these genes, which allow the yeast to produce certain enzymes, which help them convert the sugar into the opiate chemicals. Right? That's the basic chain of process there. Right. Enzymes that help the reaction along. Exactly. 
Because it's all chemical reaction here. Part A and part B and put them together or take them apart to make part C and part D. Exactly. And it's worth mentioning that one of the reasons why we haven't been able to synthesize this stuff easily in a lab before is that the molecules are really complex. Opioid molecules are incredibly complex. So what, what genes did they add? Well, they added 23 genes from six organisms, which is quite a lot for this kind of thing. They added genes from the brown rat, from the gold thread, which is an herb, California poppy, Iranian poppy, the opium poppy, and a bacterium called Pseudomonas putida. Wow. Okay. Cocktail in there. Yeah. Huge, huge cocktail of genes. Yeah. This is actually piggybacking off of a study in May from Concordia, Berkeley, and University of California. It was a big collaboration. All right. Where they had figured out the last remaining step by isolating which enzymes were actually needed to make this conversion happen. And that study, they actually, they used a gene that creates the yellow beet pigment to find the enzymes that were needed. It was, it's a cool study in its own right. But so piggybacking off of that, they were able to add these genes and successfully get the yeast, this normal run-of-the-mill baker's yeast, to produce two opioids. Thebane and hydrocodone. Okay, I don't really know either of those. Are those useful ones that we want? Yeah, these are actually extremely important opioids. Thebane is a major constituent of the raw opium itself, and hydrocodone is one of those semi-synthetic ones that we produce by chemically modifying what we get out of the opium poppy. And they both can be used as starting points to make more complicated ones like um, uh, codeine or morphine. Okay, so the thought is that one day in the future, we'll be able to use yeast to get those ones. Exactly. So th- this was a very successful study in terms of they accomplished what they were trying to do. And it was more effective than those other previous synthesis methods that I mentioned before. But still, it's pretty darn inefficient at this point. Really? Uh, yeah. Right now, they would need 4,400 gallons of bioengineered yeast to make a single dose of either medication. Like... Like one dose for one person. One dose for one person. So that's that's enough Whoa. yeast to make 1.7 million loaves of bread, to give you an idea. Whoa. Mm-hmm. That's, like, when you said inefficient, I had no idea it was that bad. That's pretty inefficient. Oh, wow. That's, okay. The scientists estimate that they would need to make the process 100,000 times more efficient before this becomes a feasible alternative to poppy farming. All right, but do they think they can? They think that they can with a ton of extra work. They, they do seem positive in the way they talk about it in the study. This doesn't sound like it's a dead end, mm-hmm. um, but there's definitely going to be a lot more work that needs to be done. So this is way down the road still. They, they want to get it down to the point where five milliliters of yeast can produce a single dose. Okay, that's a, a long way to go that's by the sounds of it. Usually a long way to go. A single dose of an opioid is currently sourced from about 0.2 square meters of poppy field land for a year. Oh, wow. That's more efficient than I thought. Yeah, it's not bad. That's not bad at all. And that's why it's going to be a long time before these lab-grown solutions are actually better. Right. So it's, I mean, it's partly because the lab solutions are inefficient, but it's also because poppy farming itself sounds to be very efficient. Yeah, it's not bad, especially compared to a, a lot of other types of farming. I mean, and it's extremely profitable. So it's going to be a while before these scientific methods of production surpass the existing crop method. It's interesting how sometimes it's not science that dictates a choice like that. It's just economics. It's just pure economics. It's actually often economics that dictates a choice like that. Usually. And in fact, economics often yeah. dictates what we study too. So, I mean, it's it's interfering from the get-go. It is worth mentioning that if we got the process of using yeast to produce these opiates, uh, or opioids, I should say, if we got that to be a really effective process, mm-hmm. and we were relying on sugar as the key crop that would be the starting starting product. Right. We're shifting 
a crop, right? But it's still more efficient to produce sugar, which means okay. it would decrease the total land area needed by over 500 times. Okay, that sounds promising. Totally. But we're still reliant on the on getting past the roadblock of this of this next step of making the process more efficient. So, a lot of good possibilities there, but also extremely so. There's a couple couple worrying worrying thoughts about the idea of this. You know, when you first said it, I was very worried about the idea of people, you know, running yeast labs in their basement to produce all manner of things, but mm-hmm. it sure also sounds like this is inefficient to the point where that wouldn't be possible in the near future. Maybe in the far future. In the far future, like w- by the time we get this process down to the the required five milliliters of yeast per dose ratio, if anyone gets their hands on any of this yeast, it's theoretically brutally easy to produce opioids. As much as you want. Yeah. So that's a bit of a, you know. Concern. Uh, it's definitely a bit of concern that we'd end up with like homebrew heroin labs, right? I don't know. I don't know whether the benefits will end up outweighing the 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 cost, but the fact is, we definitely in medically we need these drugs. They're so crucial and important for pain relief and pain management. One way or another, we're going to keep studying this, and we'll just have to deal with the social issues when they when they show up, which is unfortunately what usually happens with this kind of research. That's all for this week. We've got links to all the studies we discussed and those quick little headlines in the middle in this episode's show notes. You can find those at doubleblindscience.com. Hope you've had fun coming along with us on this week's adventure into the latest science news. Come back next week. We'll have two new and exciting stories for you, and we'll probably try and keep doing this little uh, extra headlines thing because it's cool to talk about more stuff. Do you have a story idea for us? Do you have thoughts on our show? Let us know. Send us an email, stories at doubleblindscience.com. Tweet us on Twitter, at DoubleBlindSci, or like us on Facebook, DoubleBlindScience. Cool. We'd love to hear from you. Be our friend. Thanks for listening. 